Oh. Hello again. Oh. You all set? I'm all set. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Craft Business Life podcast. My name is Lee Solomon. This is a podcast all about uh, the details, basically, the nuts and bolts, and what it's like to be an actor uh, and anything else, you know, related to, to the arts like that. Um, my guest today is uh, Nanette Deasy. She is an actor. She is a sketch comedy writer and performer and an improv comedy performer and producer and director. Um, that's how she and I met, actually, years ago. We did improv together for a while, but she's been, uh, quite active in it and, and still is, and, uh, she's part of the, she's one of the creators, and, and she's, uh, the artistic director of, uh, something called the Improvisational Repertory Theater Ensemble, I-R-T-E, which takes kind of a unique uh, theatrical approach to improv. I'm excited to hear all about that and uh, everything else. So, Nanette, thank you again so much for doing this. Oh, yeah, thanks. Great chatting with you. God, we haven't spoken in a while. Yeah, it's been a long time. Uh, I know. Yeah. I know. Since we did off the top beers yeah. before. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's funny. I was thinking that because I want to talk about, you know, how you guys do IRTE and what the style of improv is. And we'll probably improv nerd out a little bit, but only because <laughs> I I want to know sort of how you think about the formats. Because I feel like, correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, a lot of the stuff that we did at Gotham Besides Off the Top, Off the Top uh, was a straight short-form show, but mm-hmm. a lot of the other things that were done at Gotham, and if I'm not mistaken, the style you do at, at IRTE is kind of some somewhere as like, it's somewhere in between. It's like a blend of short-form and long-form. Would, would that be accurate? No, we have done shit that are definitely a blend. We actually just did one that's exactly like that. Mm-hmm. Um, what we call it was Tammy's Bachelorette and it was a very audience interactive immersive bachelorette party that um, the trashiest bachelorette party you could hope to go to um, I placed it at Pennigan's the Pennigan's that I knew growing up in, in New Jersey that was at the headquarters plaza mall in Morristown New Jersey so um, when people came into the producers club where we performed it we welcomed them to Pennigan's we, <laughs> we had um, Abby Aronson who you probably remember from Gotham. Oh, yeah. She was, yeah. she was like, she was working there, Bill Berg. A lot of, lot of Gotham people, actually. Great. Um, are involved in, in well, we call it Erty, I-R-T-E. Um, sounds familiar. But anyway, what we were saying about short form and long form. So we had these established characters that we were working with. Like, we don't jump from character to character to character. We're in costume. We do work with um, real props. Um, but we had the uh, the format structure that it's a bachelorette party, so we'd have these games that um, some of it were kind of based on traditional short form games, but that were geared towards being a bachelorette party. Like um, like we made, of course, Tammy, my character, play the dating game to show her what she might be missing out on. Oh, okay. which you know the one where you have like three people 
who are the bachelors and the bachelorette is, has, is blindfolded. She has to guess what celebrity, what animal, etc. Because the third one turned out to be her fiance that she would just never choose. They were into a huge fight. And then between these games, um, we had some where the audience would come up and play. Between these games, there would be scenes about what's really going on um, behind the scenes, like in other areas of bandages, like the bathroom, the, the, um, the parking lot, um, between these different characters kind of showing the play of what's going on. Um, so that's, I guess, where some of the long form would come into. But, um, yeah, all our shows are kind of different. They're not necessarily that structure. We start off, um, a lot of the, the thought behind Erdie is that we like to take what we like about traditional scripted indie New York City theater and combine it with improv. Um, so we take, you know, like the fun, the spontaneity, the improvisation of, of New York City improv. And we also add like, um, characters we've worked with. Um, props and costumes. I mean, we, we don't base work everything, but our props are generally like kind of trashy dime store things that you would buy at Party City or Ricky's. Or, you know, you have it like extremists or blood, um, blue sheets for waves, you know, that sort of thing. But, um, going back and I'm talking a lot about this. A lot of, yeah, you're right. A lot of the roots of, of, um, what we do, a lot of the character-based stuff does come from, I think, is informed by our years back at Gotham City, which was, I think, very character-based. Yeah, and yeah. so just to be clear, though, on what you're saying about about your, your IRTE shows, none of it is scripted, literally oh, scripted. Okay. There's, there's no, no lines or scenes or anything are written. It's all improvised. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, no. The only the only thing that actually is, is scripted is that we'll always incorporate. We have a musical guest that we write into the show, and so oh, of course okay. he's singing something. So he's not right. he's not improv. Although there are improvisational musicians, um, like we had David Johnston, who has this character, Mister David J, who played like the stripper, <laughs> except he never wanted to strip. He just would want to sing, and then he would do um, Motown medleys, you know, Mountain High Enough, and. He'd sing Tam, the theme from Tammy and the Bachelor. Anyway, so, yeah, so, but what we do is, is improvised. Yeah, and I want to hear more about, what's that? I'm sorry. Structured, but improvised. Yeah, and that's kind of what I want to talk about a little more. So, you know, and I want to hear more about the whole history of the group, because you guys have done quite a lot of stuff already. Um, uh, so, you know, it's it's a very interesting thing, you know, about improv in general these days because it's become so ubiquitous in a lot of ways. And the, mm-hmm. these... And it wasn't for a long time, not in New York, everywhere else, but yeah. Well, right, right. But, you know, it's yeah. it's 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 even more so now. It just seems yeah, yeah, yeah. so common uh, in New York and pretty much everywhere else. And a lot of actors who aren't focused on improv use it as a tool and as part of their training, and it's, it's encouraged mm-hmm. for them to do so. But what, what's interesting about the whole improv culture, uh, uh, you know, uh, so, you know, 
for people that are not in it and have never taken an improv class and don't know anything about it, but just want to go be in the audience and enjoy a, a funny show, um, you know, if you go see a, a long-form show at UCB or The Pit or somewhere, and again, I'll do, this is obviously very much a generalization, but, you know, hopefully if it's, if it's an experienced, good enough team, you will enjoy it and you will be entertained. Um, but it can also be a little confusing. It can also be a right. little... I'm not sure what it is I'm watching or, you know, what this is supposed to be, especially if they're doing, you know, some kind of special format or whatever the case. And, you know, in the improv world, there's a lot of inside baseball and there's a lot of, you know, whatever. The, the audi a lot of times the audience for long form is people who are also part of the theater, et cetera. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so... My my point, basically, is that in general, and, you know, when we were at Gotham, you know, there had been um, Chicago City Limits, and there was, there were some things that popped up occasionally, but, but I think for the most part, Gotham was the only place that I knew of in New York that was really consistently, regularly, for a long time really focusing on a commercial, uh, you know, a commercially accessible short-form show, you know, to entertain the audience. So my, my, my long-winded point is, or my question <laughs> for you is, you know, would you agree that if you're trying to be a, a, a show that's actually, like, for, for, for a public audience, for the general public who are buying a ticket and want to come see something... Uh, who don't really know anything about improv otherwise, short form is probably going to be more suited or some type of short form, kind of like what you guys are doing, is probably going to be more accessible, more entertaining to some average person in the audience uh, as opposed to long form. Would you agree with that? I don't know. It really depends on the long form. And yeah. to say it again, it's also explained, we're, we're not short form our shows. I mean, we right. incorporate short form sometimes into our shows. Uh, but we're, an, I, and I don't really even like calling our shows, our shows long form. Mm -hmm. um, because our long form really has come to mean, long form improv, I think in New York, come, come to mean something else. Like we kind of know what we're, like people who are, into improv and into the improv scene and kind of know what we're talking about, that it's usually about, like, eight people on stage um, in street clothes um, doing, you know, basically a long improvised sketch, so to speak, or a scene, right. Right. or a series, or a montage of scenes. Um, our shows, we, we're not traditional improv, like, and we're narrative-based. Cool. We have a definite world um, a definite setting. We have like a, um, we often work with characters that are already set. Like we know who we're going to play um, with costumes and, and such. So like, I feel like, yeah, I feel like our shows, one of my thoughts when I put our team together is that you have to be careful. You do have to take care of the audience. If you are putting up a show 
uh, that you are asking people that are not your friends and family, people who do not necessarily love you, <laughs> exactly. and are just are coming to see your, your, you know, coming to support you, right. and just want to be entertained. You you need to put something together that's worth whatever your ticket price. Ours is like fifteen, seventeen dollars, and an hour worth. Even if you aren't even charging any money, even if you aren't charging any money, they are giving an hour. And let's assume that 30 minutes, an hour, sometimes two hours. Our shows are an hour, personally. But they're giving their time. So you better give them something worthwhile. <laughs> you have to take care of the audience. Other than, then why, what are you doing? <laughs> if you want to, if you are basically putting together um, some form of entertainment for public consumption rather than, you know, exploring something artistically on your own with your friends that's just meant for your own benefit. Like maybe you are either just kind of having fun with your friends and blowing off steam, or maybe you are exploring something artistically, like you are trying to work on a role for another show and you're using that as a tool or if you're using it as a tool for writing, that's something differently. But if you're putting it up in front of an audience, yeah, you have to take care of the audience. Um, I think I veered really far from your question. (laughs) No, no, actually, no, no, it's actually quite the reverse. What you did was you said clearly what I was trying and failing to, to get to clearly, which is, that was exactly the point of my question was, you know, how do you guys think about it from the point of view of, you know, you want, a reg, you know, a random public audience to come enjoy your show. So that's exactly what I was talking about. So from a from an aesthetic perspective, then when you guys prepare these shows and create them and rehearse them, you know, what are your ways of doing that? What what are the things you think about to make sure that it's a show that an audience is going to be fulfilled by? Well. Uh, for one thing, you do have to pay attention to the, the space itself, where you're performing, the comfort of the audience. Mm. Um, a show in a, in a black box theater is going to be different from a show at the back of a bar. I mean, they're both legitimate fine places, but they're two very different shows and how you want to present yourself. For uh-huh. instance, we're trying to go for a more, um, we're thinking of our shows as more theater. Um, we're trying to meld traditional theater and improvisation to create something. So we want to be definitely in a theater, like the producer's club is a great place. Um, but the theater is really super small, so the audience is very close to you. So it's very interactive. Um, another thing you think about is the, the visual aesthetic. What do you want your show to look like? Um, for us, we, like, I mean, that we think about, um, theaters like um, they're a ridiculous theatrical company and how kind of trashy and out there. They're, I mean, they were from the, from the 60s and the 70s, so that's kind of going back. But um, part of it is also obviously we do not have a budget where we can have like, like a Broadway or even off-Broadway or some really, really well-funded off-off-Broadway theater. We can't have like sets and costumes and things like that. And we're also renting... Um, a theater space where we have to load everything out at the end of the night. We can't store anything there. Mm. So what we do is we have like stuff, as I said, that we buy from like um, five and dime stores, streamers, 
costume pieces like um, the masks, um, really like plastic masks, um, cat masks, um, um, just different ways like plastic sheets that can be anything. Like um, you can lift them up, you can take a flashlight and project from the back and do shadows. You can make them um, oceans. You can make them walls. Um, we, if you also have characters that you already know who you're going to play, rather than jumping back and forth and playing a million characters, which you could do, you could have like an established costume. Or you can simplify the costume, have one specific piece, one wig or um, a coat or a prop that signifies one character. So, um, how else do I say how I do? So you're taking care of the audience that they have something interesting to look at, the stage picture itself. But you don't necessarily need to spend money. You make that part of the thing that is kind of, you know, sometimes I will refer to our local dinner theater. <laughs> um, that is just stuff that you would pick up at these um, these little stores. Um, and you, or using toys as props. Um, and then also we, we tend to have, as I said, narrative-based. Actually, we do all have narrative-based shows in Erty, which means there is a definite story and through line, rather than doing a montage. A montage, I think um, other improvisers, other actors are very familiar with because having performed it themselves, so they kind of know where things are going, but if you're having kind of like a typical audience member who's not necessarily a huge fan of, of improv, they might not understand what is happening. They may, they may not. Maybe I'm selling certain people short, but I, I think it's it's helpful and it's interesting to me to have some sort of a story arc. I mean, we have nothing planned, but if I think if you focus on character relationships, if you focus on the relationships between characters, that story will will evolve. Yeah, that's exactly Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what I wanted to ask you about. So 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 that's interesting is, you know, I was going to ask again how how you guys sort of because there is no script, you know, how you make sure you achieve that narrative through line. Um so, you know, again, if you can, you know, break it down, you know, literally like technically or whatever, you know, when you guys rehearse and and plan these shows, you know, so you're not you're not, you're, you're not saying like we're not pre-planning what the A, B, and C plot points are going to be, but but you guys are focused on on characters and and uh, I guess you 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 know you're experienced enough that you know how to kind of let the actual narrative plot evolve, but pay attention to it so you can keep it going throughout the show. Right. I think generally if you have characters who have strong wants, mm-hmm. strong needs, and, and not a, a general watch who are specifically, I must this, that, or the other. It's, and I feel this way, specific way about each and every character. And that your character is, is just constantly trying to get what he or she wants as the, the narrative will unfold. But we also do have that. I mean, we do have shows where certain things are put into the structure. 
um, that there might be a plot point. I mean, nothing that's pre-planned, no dialogue pre-planned, um, how things happen um, come out differently, but some shows are looser than others. For instance, um, we have a show called The Shippy Thinking that's coming up next month, and that ship's got to sink. I mean, that's not going to be improvised. But this, right. The ship right. does sink. Yeah. Um, and we're going to have characters that we know who we're going to play, but we may all die different ways. And yes, not to like spoilers, but a lot of people are going to die in the show. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And Tammy's bachelorette. I mean, it's always going to start off with everybody like Tammy gets introduced and it's supposedly a surprise bachelorette, but she knows it's coming. And, and, um, and her ex fiance, it's already established her ex fiance is going to come in. It's going to come in at a certain point and try and stop things and try and win her back. How he does that, we don't know. And then at the end, it's generally, it's because it's Tammy's bachelorette and it's happy enough. Be, Tammy and Rudy, her fiancé, work it out somehow. They will end up together at the end. But how that happens. So again, we have certain, like, you know, the narrative is taken care of. But a lot of it evolves out of character relationships. But we sometimes, you know, we'll also work with different guideposts of where the show needs to be at a certain point. It's really fantastic. It really does sound like a really unique um, evening of, of theater and of improv. And like I said, a very creative approach. And, uh, uh, you know, you're really giving the audience a really interesting and, and quality you know, experience and, and, and a real improvised play, essentially. So that's that's really great. Yeah. And um, so, and you guys have been around for quite a few years. I remember you guys started back when we were still at Gotham, right? Yeah, actually. I think Gotham probably was um, one of the our first venues. Um, it wasn't a Gotham show, but we did the shows there. I mean, it was it wasn't Gotham produced, but they were very nice to volunteer the space to offer us the space. And we oh yeah, no, there, no. and it was yeah, it was a lot of um, of course everybody that I knew and Robert knew at the time we were all from the same theater. I mean, there were a couple of of pit people because I was getting involved there at the time as well. But, yeah, but I just mean. No, absolutely. I just meant, though, like, how many years total have you guys been in existence oh. now? <laughs> oh, this is our eighth season. Eighth season. So, That's phenomenal. Yeah. We first got together and started talking about, I, well, I I started thinking about this in, I think, November of 2011. Mm-hmm. And sort of mapping it out and figuring it out. And then just invited various people because I wanted to do this with me. and yeah. And kind of figuring out how to, also not just to put up one show at a time, but there was also a thought too that it would be, um, helpful to think of a season rather than, rather than go like try and throw up a show really quickly one at a time without thinking ahead. So like we plan out a full season of four shows and then spend time beforehand, you know, figuring out how to market it, how to sell it. Get everything that you can pre-production wise taken care of and out of the way before you start rehearsing. I mean, you're always still in production, but yeah, and to just try and think of it as a full season rather than separate independent shows. Yeah, that's no, that's great because, like you said, and and like it is in the name, you're really treating it like a 
like a regular theatrical repertory company. That's really fantastic. So, so each year, each season, you, you might do how many shows total? Four, and then, um, four where there's four performances per month. And then once we're done with our official New York City season, we, we often submit and then go to different festivals. We'll go to um, a lot of fringe, fringe festivals. That's great. Which has been great. Yeah. So, really so, it's super fun. So, is it kind of timed out sort of like literally seasonally? Like, you might have a fall show and then you take a couple of months to prepare the next one. So, like, every two or three months, you have a new one in New York? No, we, we do. We basically go, our shows go from March to June. Oh. Okay. Together. Yep. Yeah, we get together. Probably in January, maybe the end of December, we'll, we'll, we'll start talking in, in November and then start meeting and then we'll have like pre-production meetings, the, uh, mm-hmm. the main ensemble, uh, for like, you know, two months about where we are talking about like what starts, well, aside from, um, brainstorming what our season's going to be and then we all pitch ideas to each other and vote on them. We also talk about, well, how are we going to market this? Who could we, um, where are we going to do this? I mean, we've been performing at the Producers Club pretty consistently um, for the past several years. Um, you know, what else are we going to do? Are we going to do workshops? Who do we want to study with? Yeah, we, yeah we, um, we'll, we'll hire, um, we'll approach different master teachers to put together a workshop. We, do, we don't do a whole lot because we're not really a school or anything, but we want to keep working um, and improving our skills as performers. And since we're not really involved, we've already kind of gone through various improv programs. We're not currently at any of those um, improv schools right now, but we got to keep training with outside people and with people that we are interested in. So we'll approach them um, and put together asking to teach a workshop, and then we'll open it up to um, people outside the group as well to fill out the class and also to meet other improvisers one of the best ways to get to know who else is out there performing who might want to be in our shows. Um, so anyway, so then the shows themselves, we start rehearsing in February and then also shows in March. Then we have a separate show, a second show in April, third in May and fourth in June. And while we're performing one, we're rehearsing the next one. And then when we end in June, maybe we'll go off and we'll do um, a festival in the summer and then maybe we'll do a festival in the fall. That is so killer. That really is. And I, you know, it's funny. I've been aware of Ernie because of knowing you for so many years, but regrettably, I never really paid attention or knew how you guys were doing this. This is a, a fantastic way to do it. That's really impressive. Thanks. Yeah, you, you should come check us out. <laughs> we'll absolutely try. Yeah, we'll see what I'm talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's funny for, you know, we haven't talked or seen each other in, in years now, but yeah. even back then when you guys were starting and you were doing a lot and I, for whatever reason, I never made it to any of those shows and I'm sorry about that. But, um, yeah. So, well, I think you're so, pretty busy uh, producing, yeah. I think you're pretty busy producing your own stuff as well. At that time, I guess. That time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, so yes, I will try to do so. So, um, <laughs> but that's really cool. That's and true. so, what's that? 
with pressure. Yeah, no, no. We got to support each other. And, and I'm, I'm so out of that world now. I'm not directly involved in that world at all. So it'd be great to, to come just see something. So, um, so a couple more things on the producing end, since you guys really do do this so thoroughly and professionally. It's fantastic. Now, so you talked about, obviously, you pay for the space and whatever your other costs are, and you talk about marketing and so forth. So besides you, do the other members of the company put in money? Do you guys all contribute financially to the production? Yeah, we're all self-producing. How it works is um, all of us who are in one particular show, we split the cost of what it takes to produce it. That means it's like the space, the venue, the performance space, rehearsal space, postcards, posters. We work with a publicist. Um, I'm thinking what else. I think that's pretty much it. Usually we we direct ourselves in-house, so we don't hire outside directors. Sometimes we will, but it's become less and less frequent. Oh, yeah, we, we also um, have to hire uh, a tech director. Um, so we split that equally, everybody. And then we split the ticket sales afterwards completely equally. In addition to that, we also, you know, you have to crowd, you have to crowdfund because unfortunately, like it's expensive, as you know, it's really super expensive in New York. It sure space is. Space is expensive, yeah. and it's really hard to. It's kind of it's very, very, very difficult to um, make your money back from ticket sales alone, it even really if you is. completely sell out. Yeah. Um, without making the tickets prohibitively expensive. Like right. we like to keep it, we keep it, you know, $15 in advance, $17 door. We run specials through different ticketing agencies um, that can get you cheaper tickets. But for an hour long show, um, we're not raising the price for that. Anything further. Um, well, and if so, I... but it just, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm um, sorry. So, Please go, go on. <laughs> so, in order to um, to like, lessen that gap, um, we then we also throughout the year, like right now, it's it's going right now. So if anybody's listening wants to <laughs> support independent New York City theater, um, check us out at irtinfo.com because we're running a crowdfunding campaign. So that usually fills the gap, and that end of the year we take the money that we have raised from that and we. Uh, try and like we cover the shortfall of the reimbursements as best we can so well again that's a very wise very wise way to do it and i know what i was going to say was you know a couple of things so and again this is you know for people who are interested in you know because there's so many actors and people who are producing their own work these days uh i mean there always have been but i think even more so and there's a lot to think about. But what's interesting about what you're doing, I think, is, you know, people who are in the more casual improv world or the improv world of these established theaters like UCB and The Pit and whatever, somebody might go, oh, 15 or $17 for an improv show, that's crazy. But, you know, as you said earlier, you're giving a real... A, a, you know, a real audience, a, a narrative and, and a theatrical experience to the audience, number one. Number two, you're at the Producers Club, which is off-Broadway. It's in Times Square. 
And I think a ticket price like that actually gives more legitimacy to it. You know, somebody who's just in the city looking to see a show, and they, you know, it's off-Broadway, it's a comedy thing, and the the, the price, I think, fits, because it makes them go, oh, you know, this isn't some crazy, unreasonable Broadway price, but this is a real show, you know, that I'm going to go see. So I, I, I think it's I think it's a good thing. I really do. Actually, compared to a lot of, like, off-off-Broadway theater, we're still pretty cheap. Oh, absolutely. Um, it's, it's something, yeah, it's something that I think is kind of, uh, forgive me anyone who says otherwise or thinks that I'm being ridiculous, but I think, I think improvisers tell themselves so short. I mean, on one hand, mm-hmm. no, all shows, just because it's improv, all shows are not created equally. Um, 100%. You should not be charging, yeah, you should no. not be charging the same, you should not think that you should be charging the same amount as you would charge for, like, somebody who's a seasoned, well-established, popular show with people who've been doing it a long time. It's not all the same thing. And unfortunately, course. I think uh, a lot of people don't see... I guess the trees for the forest when it comes to improv, but everything gets kind of painted with the same brush. Um, and all improv is great. Let me say that. Let me make sure that clear. <laughs> but they're different. I mean, there is yeah. improv that is just people having fun with their friends, blowing off steam and stretching themselves creatively. And then there's improv, improvisational shows that really aspire to be, um, um, for the consumer, consumer consumption worthy. <laughs> the theater experience that they, they're putting a little more time, a little more rehearsal, a little more money themselves into, they should charge accordingly. <laughs> so, no, that's exactly what I'm saying. And, and it's a great yeah. point, an important point. And I completely agree with you. And that's why, yeah, that's why a show like yours is a legitimate theater show. Absolutely. And that's great. So yeah, no that that is a really that is a really important point, a hundred percent. Yeah, I I also think that this sort of mentality, I think it's changing now because a lot of the larger theaters have to up their prices. Mm-hmm. But there was a point where I couldn't believe I'd see online these arguments for these people who are like, "You can't charge more than five dollars for an improv show oh, God. because nobody will come and they'll kill." And like this right. ridiculous undervaluing of right. themselves. Right. I'm like, well, and of course, if you say your show, and some of the shows are only worth five dollars. I'm not saying that every show yeah. is worth more, is worth yeah. a certain price point, yeah. but every show, like the people who are doing shows that are putting a lot of work into it, with are delivering a good show, who then sell themselves at five bucks or ten bucks or whatever, or some cheap amount, the audience perception is going to be, well, that's a, a cheap ticket. You might not be that good. That's, that's <laughs> You're exactly also, what I meant about the legitimacy. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah, so no, I completely agree with you. And you're right, you know, the, the performers themselves and also the audience perception, um, you don't want to sell it short. You know, people need to know that improv is just as serious and disciplined an art form as as anything else. So, yeah, that's great. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so we're going to post all these links and everything on the episode notes, of course, for people. But say again, if people want to see a show or support IRTE, where do they go? They go to IRTEinfo.com. IRTEinfo.com. It's not IRTE.com because if you go there, it's some sort of a, 
international um, highway transportation <laughs> organization. <laughs> Gotcha. I only discovered was also called IRT after yes. came up with the name and everything. But I figured, you know, we're kind of different, so hopefully people won't be too confused gotcha. for the uh, highway regulation, and whatever. Right. <laughs> and your lawsuit against that organization is still pending. No, pending, uh, yeah. <laughs> but no, that's like I said, we'll post that. And uh, this is good timing now that I understand the structure of your seasons. Um, we're kind of right in the middle of your uh, of your first yeah. month of the season, right? Okay, so that's great. Yeah, right. And um, right. how many during, so you have the, the four shows, one per month for four months, and how many performances of each show per month? Four performances. Oh, so literally we're once, once a week. We're in and out. Got well, it. Well, no, it's um, two a week. We go just go for Friday, Saturday, Friday, Saturday. Oh, okay. And then... We're, and then we have like a a week or two. Usually, it's usually like two weeks before the next show. Or oh, a week I see. Before the next, right, cool. yeah. Excellent, excellent. So, give us a little more breathing room. <laughs> yeah. No, it's and it's it really like I said, it sounds like a really really cool thing. So very 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 impressive. And you also perform as part of a two person improv duo. Oh yeah, with Grace and Doris Double D. Yeah, tell us yeah. about that. Um, that's really fun. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's improv, um, I met Grace and at People's Improv Theater at the Pit. So we were on one of the Pit TV teams together writing sketches for their, their video arm. Um, and then I invited her, she was a member of Ernie for, God, was it a season or two seasons? Um, that just sort of melds together in my mind. Um, but anyway. So I'm kind of trying to look at her now, so I don't, so I don't short change her any past seasons. Okay. Well, anyway, um, and then she kind of she she left Uri to concentrate more on her own film work and her own projects, and we started also then just performing separately together, where it was just the two of us, and that's um, and I, I kind of like. I, I enjoy working with her because it is very different from Ernie. So it's, it kind of scratches another improvisational itch that I have. Right. Where it's theatrical, but not in the way that Ernie does. Um, it's more traditional improv, the way that you probably know it, where two people on stage playing different, many different characters. Um, sometimes we'll have a mild hint of a costume, but it's really just, kind of a flavor because we're playing so many different characters like we we did um one show which was a horror themed show called scranton buckets about an old abandoned bucket factory in scranton pennsylvania that it starts off with my character the real estate agent who's bringing the audience in because they're the um um the, the legal team for the new owners which is the um this company called Piranha, which is mostly based on Amazon. <laughs> and then it kind of goes into, and then Grace Ann played this character who's this woman who used to work at Scranton Buckets who's still there, listening with her cat. Um, I'll, I'll tell you that, that in a second. It's a whole other thing. Um, and then we kind of go through the history of like what has made this, um, like getting audience suggestions and going to the audience a lot. We go through the history of what happened. 
what's the big secret? Why did Scranton Buckets become evil? Who's haunting it? And then we have the confrontation at the end. So that's one show we do. And then we've also done, um, we're doing a show actually at the New York City Improv Festival on Sunday called Rejects Anonymous, which is an improvised support group for people who have, who are dealing with rejection in their lives, as we all have, who are basically just big losers. <laughs> like everyone secretly thinks that they are. Um, so we'll come in and we'll have the audience, the big circle, like a, like a support group. And um, they'll write down moments of when they've been rejected in their lives, and then we'll play characters pulling from those rejections, sharing their stories kind of in the round, and then switching back and forth. Um, so that's a lot of fun. And we developed that also for originally for the Scranton Fringe Festival. Fantastic. So you said that's at the New York Improv Festival this, this coming Sunday. Yeah, that's at... Okay, I'm going to have to look at the time of <laughs> Like, I should know that because I need to be there. Um, it's at 3 o'clock at the Pit Underground. Very cool. And again, we'll post the, the links to all that stuff. And um, and do you guys have uh, a website or anything uh, for, for, for your duo, for other, you know, if people want to see yeah. what else you're doing? Yes, we are. Um, we're going to double the improv dot com. Let me make sure that that's actually correct. I should be a little more prepared for this conversation. No, no. Like I said, we're gonna, we're gonna. I'll get it all from you over email, and we'll we'll post it. But yes, it's double the improv dot com. Beautiful. So you know, again, if you're in the improv world, um. You know, you, 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 you know, the, the two person thing, I think, I think it got a little more common over the years, but, but it's still fairly rare. Um, and it's a very unique, uh, and challenging way to do it. Um, so, you know, what, what would you say? Can you say a little more about, you know, what it's like to work when it is just the two of you? I mean, do you use outside coaches and or directors or no? Oh yeah, you always, I, I'm a firm believer, you, you always, always, always have to have a coach director. When I'm talking about Ernie and saying that we direct in house, we, one of us will step out of the, like, will step out. Oh, okay. Be the director. We do not direct our sh- ourselves who are in the show. You cannot ah, be in a show and gotcha. direct. I'm a firm believer in that. I, I think that it's trouble, like, once you're not going to have an outside eye into how can you do a scene with somebody if the person that's across from you is judging everything that you're doing. Yeah. And going to give you notes later. I mean, no, yeah, exactly. Right, right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, for for um, Double D, we'll, we'll work with different coaches. We'll, um, um, we've, uh, yeah, because um, I think that that's, important um and what you know what, what would you say about you know the the you know obviously when there's only two of you that's that's you know you know when you're in a bigger improv group you sometimes get a little break or you sometimes are not the main focus of a scene etc when it's two of you it's it's pretty much always just you guys both of you so you yeah. know what, what, you know, how, how do you find that? How do you 
sustain that level of focus throughout the whole show? You know, is it, is it, is it, you know, how is that for you? Uh, I personally love it. I mean, it's, it satisfies the performance glutton in me that I'm like, it's me. Nobody's going to sweep that at me. Nobody's coming to take me out. Right. It's just me and Grayson. Right. Maybe I'll let Grayson have a monologue. Right. Maybe she'll have some time alone on stage. But I'm coming in and nobody's taking me off. Right. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm like, I'm joking. Like, it's, they both have their advantages. Um, I think, like, you know, some of the danger when you're in a larger group is you can check out and then you are screwed yeah. because you, because it's not a script, you might have missed some important information. Right. <laughs> um, um, I think the the two projects is super super fun. Um, one because Grace Hand is such an excellent performer. Um, she's really great to work with. She's very smart. Um, she's very open and just well, yes, spontaneous, which is what you would hope from an improv partner. Um, but she's also really free, and she will play just about anything. So, so it's. It's very liberating because we can just do just about any sort of characters together. Um, it's great because you can also play different characters if you want. Um, you can sort of take it in so many different directions. Um, yeah, and I think also because you're not working with maybe like 16 people all time for, <laughs> for basically time on stage. You don't really feel rushed because nobody's coming to like, I'm coming to bail you out. You look like you're struggling. Right. Not really. I'm going to come in and save you by getting you out sure. of the scene. Yeah, absolutely. Um, not that that ha- you know, I mean, and and that's part of the reason why I do not have cast at 16 people ever. But, um, yeah, there's less of that when there's only two of you. Absolutely. No, very cool. Yeah. Um, so, um, so, uh, besides uh, all this uh, improv work you do, uh, which gives you plenty to keep busy, it sounds like, uh, but you are also a, a actress who, uh, you've done a lot of theater and you've done films and so forth. Mm-hmm. And by the way, we should, um, tell people for, for actors or, young, you know, new actors out there who might be wondering, uh, and I remember you and I discussed this a million years ago, actually, what's great is that, because you, you are in equity, right? You're in regular actors' equity. Yep. Yeah. So yep. what people need to know is that you can do improv, and I, I'm not sure about sketch, you tell me, but definitely improv without any, without any equity-related restrictions or anything uh, because it's considered cabaret, is that right? It's not, no. Cabaret actually has, I think, actually, I, I'm, don't quote me on that. I'm not too familiar with the cabaret, but I think that they have their own guidelines, but but improv so far, it's non-jurisdictional. Mm. It doesn't fall under anything. Okay. As far as the, as far as the unions are concerned. Right. Which so that's, is I'm, you know, as a as a theater artist, as an actor, I'm very pro union. Sure. However, I do admit that it makes things a lot simpler, you know, when pre-producing. Exactly. They're not, they should be not jurisdictional. 
and also be able to use whoever you want. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah. So we're just just giving people the information in case they don't know. Yeah. If you are an equity actor, don't worry about um, any perform any improv oh, yeah. performances you do uh, being an issue at all. Yeah. Yeah. And take it from me, you know, I've had, I've actually, I have had, and people in our group have had this discussion with actors' equity. So mm-hmm. you can take it from the horse's mouth. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's well, non jurisdictional. Right. Yeah. Cool. But anyway, so that was just uh, a good piece of information, but also just a segue into your, um, your scripted acting work. So you've done plays, you've done films. Um, any mm-hmm. current projects in that vein or anything, or do, you know, do you audition a lot for that kind of stuff? Um, yeah, I audition. To be honest, um, I put so much focus now on Ernie that that's where a lot of my concentration is these days. Okay. But I'm still acting, I'm still doing other stuff. Um, actually, I, I was in a, a film that Johnny Vito, who you know. Oh yeah, a former Gotham person. He wow, is yeah. doing a lot of his own. He's doing a lot of his own screenwriting and self-producing and creating films and getting them out to festivals and stuff. And I just did a film with him um, just last year, actually, that is uh, in post-production right now and it's going to be really soon. Called Love Lives in a Void. And Grayson and I is double D. We do a lot of like some film stuff together. And uh, I'm not. I'm not sure if I'm supposed to announce this because they haven't announced. By the time this airs, it will be announced anyway. It's going to be announced. Um, our film called "Don't Blink" is at has just been um, selected for a film festival. Oh gosh, the horror film festival in Seattle. Oh great! Congratulations. Yeah, it is really a very um, weird. Film. I'll play with it. I'm just trying to find out what the name of this festival is. <laughs> I'm so prepared to talk to you. I know what I'm working on. <laughs> ah, my email keeps updating. Um, <sighs> well, to be fair, you didn't necessarily know that you'd have to have these references offhand. I didn't. You know, I didn't say you would have to or anything, so don't worry about it. Like I said, we will post all this stuff officially in the in the episode notes, so it's all good. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's uh, oh, it's in Seattle. It's a it's a, <laughs> it's a horror cool. film festival. So don't blink. It's on. It's funny because we her <laughs> we've used Grace Ann's cat a lot. Um, her ex cat. Because her, her cat, this, I mean, this is going to be disturbing to some people. I think I told this to my sister, and she was she's really not, she's very disturbed by the whole concept. We, um, we had this really friendly, nice cat, and, and after he, he died, and he passed away, Grace Ann had him freeze-dried. Oh. Um, yes. Yeah. So he has a taxidermy cat. I do admit that I, I feel a little weird sometimes performing with a cat that I knew in real life. He was very cute, but he's Terrific. Um, we did Scranton Buckets. <laughs> like we, he was the third member of Double D. Like she has this taxidermy. It's, his name is Beaker. He's a very cute cat. He's very dead. Um, and he played a character in the show as well. And okay, and don't blink. He's my co-star. That it's this, it's this underground staring contest um, competition uh, oh. where the winner 
get to take your eyeballs. Ah. <laughs> and so it comes in like I'm wearing big, eyeballs and jeans. Big, big and I'm, fakes there, yeah. And I'm competing against Speaker, who obviously does not blink a whole lot. Um, so anyway, there's Love it. some horrible eyeball eating and stuff. Okay, here is the name of it. Oh, Bone Back, Comedy of Horror Film Festival. And that only took me 20 minutes to look up. <laughs> it's quite all right. And like I said, we'll post everything. Okay, very cool. Um, so congratulations. That's ex- That's excellent. Um, Thank you. So another sort of general subtopic of this podcast is, you know, about actors' day-to-day lives and how they balance everything when they're not working and whatever else. So, yeah. you know, you, you focused on the uh, improv stuff a lot and, and you're producing already and everything um, mm-hmm. and doing this, these, uh, this other acting when you can. Um, what's your day job situation? Do you have a day job or, or no? <laughs> oh, yes, I do. Um, sadly, I think that that's pretty much the norm for a lot of people, especially living in New York, which is one of the most expensive places to live. Yeah. Plus, I think it's also good to have a day job so you're not constantly creeped out trying to get work, trying to get active work day to day. Right. Um, so my day job is I work at a family office, um, which is basically, it's uh, a financial investment firm where we, you know, handle the investments of one particular family. Um, so I won't go into which family because it's kind of private information, but no. yeah, it's, it's great. It's actually, it's a really good supportive place. There's actually a lot of really creative people who work there who are also in the theater arts. Um, and I, you know, I work, I work flexible hours so that I can kind of come and go to auditions if I give them a heads up. Great. Um, I work, I work four days a week. So one of my days is my, I use it as my office day for my own projects, mostly for Ernie these days. My theater company, it takes a lot of work just doing the administrative aspect of it. Of course. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So yeah. So I have. Uh, one day a week office hours <laughs> at home, um, working on my personal stuff, and of course weekends, evenings. So yeah, it's a really tough balance, um, but you make it work. Yeah, and I think you you speak to an important point, which is, you know, actors' schedules can be so random and and unpredictable mm-hmm. and so forth. But to whatever extent you can, I think keeping yourself organized and also devoting, like you said, like this is my day where I'm devoting these hours, you know, to my whatever I have to do, you know, uh, I think that's helpful, you know, and uh, whatever you can do to keep it organized and and grounded for yourself. Yeah, you have to carve it out, and you also need to find um, a day job that is supportive and can be flexible and still pay you. Um, enough to be able to not just cover your bills, but cover them comfortably so you're not, you know, freaked out or, unco- or you know, <laughs> just panicking all the time. No, exactly. Um, Again, this is one of the big subtopics of this podcast, and I've already yeah. learned from it. I know that some of this from my own experience, but I've also learned in talking to the guests, you know, that a lot of, you know, the different, obviously, as we know, there's, there's some people do the restaurant thing. Some people... Um, mm-hmm do all kinds of random work. 
And the other thing I've learned from a couple of people now is that there are temp agencies that work with actors specifically. They're quite used to it. And, you know, I always thought temping was like straight, nine to five, you're in an office, you know, for however many days or weeks. But actually, these temp agencies, some of them, I'm told, they got all kinds of random gigs on different days, different hours, and and they really can be flexible for actors. If you tell them you're only free from 12 to 4, they can, they, you know, at least sometimes find you a job that'll take you just from 12 to 4, so it's, that's very cool. Yeah, I mean, they're out there, and yeah. part of it is just kind of being upfront and honest with, not just with the, the temp agents, but also with yourself, with like, what do you really need? What do you want? Right. Because usually there there is <laughs> there's a list for every pot. Um, usually there's somebody who has the same needs. Um, I mean, I, I remember like being in my 20s, my early 20s, and just thinking like, oh, I can't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone you're an actor. Right, right, exactly. Um, yeah. It's a secret. Yeah. It's a <laughs> when you pretend to go out to lunch and you're secretly going to an audition <laughs> and then sweat and like, have a heart attack as you're in the waiting room for your audition and they're going 30 minutes behind and becomes 40 minutes and you're, you're thinking yep. I'm fired and then yep. have a wonderful audition with that yep. like that. Yep, but exactly. When the, when the truth is, some corporations, some employers um, want somebody who's 9 to 5 and very steady and some are kind of like, okay, well, you have this set of, these set, this set of skills or we're only looking for somebody who who can do X amount of hours, and we don't care when you come in as long as you get your job done. I mean, it's just a conversation. There are people out there who are fine with that, who will work with your flexible. You just have to, you know, know that you deserve to be able to look for that, you, you know, <laughs> that you can be honest about that, and it's not a horrible thing. It's just the reality of what you need. Yeah, no, it's it's a really okay. important it's a really important point. It's come up a bunch of times that, you know, if you're choosing to be an actor and choosing that, you know, pursuing that career is your priority, then you have to treat your survival jobs accordingly and, and think of it that right. way. I was just talking to a guy the other, uh, yesterday, actually, a great guest uh, whose episode will be posted soon. Um uh, he was talking about his main survival gig is, is catering, uh, waitering at catering gigs. And he loves it because they're individual scheduled things. You know, you're paid by the hour. And their yeah. pol- the policy where, at least at the places he works, is um, 48 hours. So even if two days before you decide, no, I'm not doing this one, they don't, you're not in any trouble. Um, so as long as you respect that 48 hour thing, and he said also there's plenty of people who, who can cover. So, um, the, the, the point being there's a million, you know, types of survival jobs out there for actors. So there's, there's plenty of options, uh, which is great. Um, yeah, cool. And you gotta, and you gotta live your life now and you gotta make some money for yourself and you gotta take vacations and you gotta like, you go ahead and get married to the person you want to marry if you if you want to live your life. You know, don't like like kind of struggle and be like I've got to make, I can only make money from acting and I can't take any sort of job. I mean, I'd love to 
only money for marketing, but of course, yeah. it's also okay, it's okay to have different aspects to your life. And in fact, it's better for you, I think, to have different things going on. It's not just all about auditions and the show. No, because, um, yeah, you, 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 there are a lot of reasons for that. You know, you need a real life to draw from for your art, number one. Yeah. And number two, just to keep yourself sane. And, you know, like you said, yeah. if you're showing up to auditions, jaded and desperate and, and whatever then <laughs> and you're sweating and sweating <laughs> and you're probably not going to do that well no you're not no. oh god and I know that like and I bet every single actor has had that like experience where we thought like where you had to like sneak out and go to an audition that was just terrible waiting there <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh, they always, they always true. yeah yeah um, so yeah, very very important important points. So um, let's talk about your background. Uh, where where did you grow up? I grew up in New Jersey, mm-hmm. not quite far away in Chatham Township. Um, my parents are from Ireland, so oh, okay. my siblings and I are, are first generation Irish. Oh wow! Um, yeah, and then um, God, I really remember. Um, I went to I went to college here actually in New York. Um, I went to Columbia University um, and studied English. I always did, I always was an actor and I always took acting classes, but I didn't major in it because at the time that I was at Columbia, they didn't really have a very strong theater department yet. Like the, the graduate theater program hadn't, didn't, didn't exist yet until. Oh, okay. Um, but it's New York. <laughs> so there's voice teachers and acting teachers galore and there was, a couple of good acting teachers at the at the school at Columbia. You weren't going to get any credit, course credit for them. Um, so yeah, so and then I just kind of stayed in New York. The, I just honestly love the city so much that I couldn't imagine moving living anywhere else. So you you started acting or being interested in acting. Was it even before college? Was it like in high school or no? Oh, oh yeah! I was definitely like the the kid who was trying to get into who's, <laughs> and my sister is an actor as well. And she's a couple of years older than me, so I'd be, oh, okay. you know, feeling feeling her backstages that she would bring back, and then trying to figure out how to get into the city, and then have no idea how to get into the city on my own uh-huh. from the suburbs of New Jersey. Right. Um, yeah, I was always that. I was always doing you know school plays, local community plays. I went to like you know theater camp. The whole thing, always. always. So when you when you came to New York to Columbia, I mean, were you already like thinking of acting as a as a career goal, or was it still just more of a hobby at that point? No, it was, it was probably a career goal. But to be honest, I'm not sure how honest I was with myself. Yeah. At that time, being a teenager, like uh, whether like. I was like, yeah, I'm going to be, I'm going to be an actor someday, but I'm not going to tell anyone. <laughs> um, especially um, not, especially not your boss yeah. at the day job. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it was always my intention upon graduating college, I'd be an actor, but um, I also wanted to go to a good liberal arts college. Um, I didn't necessarily want to go at the time to um, an acting school undergraduate. Um, I wanted to go to Columbia, and I just wanted to take and thought that I could take 
to do my classes separately that were theater training. I just didn't see... Plus, I think that my parents probably would not have fitted the bill when <laughs> I come to theater school, to be honest. To be totally honest. So, so was, <laughs> was English just sort of a... Was English just sort of a safe major that you were interested in, or did you have any, you know, any plans related to that, to the English major? Oh, I think that I figured that, <laughs> well, mostly I was an English major because all I wanted to do was, if I wasn't performing, all I wanted to do was sit around and read. <laughs> I just, I was either the acting geek who was all in the school plays or the one who was hiding in the library, so that seemed like a good that seemed like a good fit for me. Um, and yeah, I, I figured also with an English degree, like you could do anything <laughs> upon graduation. Well, and of course, um, it's not uncommon for, for actors and theater people to, to do the English thing as well. And, yeah. it, make, and it makes sense. And, it's funny. I, I didn't think of this till just now, but you just made me think of a memory that I had forgotten about that I always, that I always liked when I was in college. Um, I said to a friend of mine, cause I was, I was, doing theater and I was doing philosophy and whatever but I said to my friend who was like an English she was an English major and she was like in honors English and all this and I said oh man you know that sounds like a great major because it's just like hey read all these great books and she was like and she was like yeah but it's really kind of like here read all these great books right now (laughs) oh yeah Oh, yeah. Oh, my God, yes. Uh, <laughs> it was really, like, stacks and stacks and stacks of everything that you had to read. Yeah. Um, and also, you had to write a lot, too. Yeah, no, I mean, it just turned out, honestly, it just turned out all the classes that I was interested in, uh, whether they were literature classes or they were writing classes, they were all in the English department, so that's what I what I did. But, yeah, there was, <laughs> it's, here's all these great works read them all at the same time by tomorrow right. and write a treatise exactly, on it. Exactly, exactly. I think I still, I still have nightmares about, uh, there was one comparative lit class where I didn't get to, I didn't get to Tess of the Derber Bills. I did not finish the book Tess of the Derber Bills. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a like classic. Yeah. Um, Thomas Hardy, I think. Um, yeah. And I was like, I can't. So I did the cliff note. <laughs> and I study. I spent so much time studying the goddamn cliff notes. I should have just read the book. It would have taken less time. Right, right. And I knew, I knew, I knew so much about Tess of the Durbervilles in and out. I could, I could write like a, a treatise on it. I, I without ever having actually without having read the book. Nowhere was it ever on this this exam. Wow. Um, I finally read. I finally read it years later. It was on my still on my bookshelf, and it was like this is really damn good. Why didn't I just read this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's kind of a common thing in life in general. Some people make so much effort to avoid something, they end up making more effort than it would have taken just to do the friggin' thing. But um, yeah. but no. But I'm also curious. You know, Columbia being an Ivy League school and everything. Um, you know, what was the academic environment like there? Was it was it pretty intense, pretty challenging, or no? Yeah, it was intense. It's, it's, a, it's a good school. I mean, I yeah. honestly, I really loved going there. That's great. Um, I I just enjoyed it. It's funny, like you you look back on college and you think how I go at the time, just feel like oh, so stressed out, all these exams, all this homework, all everything you have to write, everything you have to read, everything you have to do. And then I look back on now, I'm like oh. 
how nice. All I had to do was read and write. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All I had I, to do. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, it's oh. funny, like, you know, I, you know, when I was in college, at certain points, I thought I wanted to stay in academia. I thought I was going to stick with philosophy and go to grad school for it and this and that. And I decided to do the actor thing at the time. And I'm not going to lie. I don't, I don't regret, uh, you know, all the, the time I spent trying to be an actor and whatever. But looking back now, uh, I feel like if I knew then what I know now, and of course hindsight, you know, who can say, but I might have done that or I might have focused on like communications or something because that's more what I'm now trying to do anyway but um, that's a whole other whole other personal tangent obviously again hindsight is is what it is but um, but my my point is I understand what you're saying about the academic world seeming like a a wonderful place to uh to immerse yourself in absolutely and it was good because Columbia had um the thing that they were so into or they're still into is they have this core curriculum where you can't just simply get lost in your own major and only focus on the classes if you're an English major or on or if you're econ only focus on um, finance classes but they make you um, do a broad western (laughs) civilization curriculum where you do have to take certain math classes and science classes and language classes and contemporary philosophy and civilization and writing that you have and and music and so you have to have like a really sure broad um, curriculum that kind of opens you up to different ideas different modes of thought of what you might want to study because who knows what nobody knows what they want to be or really what they want to do when they're 18 I mean even though like most of us who are actors probably have this desire to be an actor since the womb yeah but a lot of your other interests you don't really if you don't give them a chance to develop, you don't really know what else is out there for you. No, absolutely. And again, plus, you know, for an artist and for, and also just for any human being, you know, the, the, you know, broad education and, and whatever you're happy, you know, whatever you study and are interested in is all great and is all helpful. Yeah. Yeah. So, what's that? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, okay, so you graduate from Columbia, you're already thinking about acting, you're in New York, so then what What? what do you do, what, what, what happens next for you? You get a terrible job that you are fired from very quickly. Really? <laughs> um, yeah, you, get, you graduate and then suddenly you're kind of, as, as one teacher put it, you're kicked out of the ivory tower for a while. Um, <laughs> Yep. And the whole the whole cold reality of I'm in this expensive city. Where do I go? I need a job. I need to pay bills. Yeah. I'll take anything. Yeah. Oh God, this yeah. is boring. I was I had oh my god one of my first jobs out of college um, was I was working for uh, as a copy editor for. Um, uh, the Journal of Experimental Medicine, <laughs> and it was the most boring. It was, it was just horrible. It was just finding new and clever ways to replace, and then they killed the mouse <laughs> with with um, some other phrase. And they, right. oh, I don't know. I don't remember what I would say other than euthanized, or because it's just 
uh, very dry scientific. Gotcha. <laughs> um, anyway. Um, so yeah, I did not laugh there. <laughs> I was so bored. Um, and there, yeah. Um, and not to date myself, but there really wasn't uh, internet the way that we know it was right. available to rescue you from your eyes rolling up into your head. Um, and I was trying to figure out, and it was at that point that I also didn't know the whole, you can have a job and audition as well and be an actor. Right. I didn't, yeah, I hadn't come to the realization that it's not either have a nine to five job where you can never leave and right. um, you can't audition or be a waiter. Right. Although it's funny, I was like, now there's, now I laugh, there's no such thing as a nine to five job anymore anyway. Um, right, right. Everything's like eight until seven. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's what I did. And then um, after, um, I was very politely asked to leave <laughs> because I was clearly not enjoying myself or um, really the most diligent worker there. Um, I was like, oh, I should, you know, I need to really focus on acting and be in just audition and just mm-hmm. do, you know, shows. Um, and I just got involved with more classes, um, more theaters, did more uh, different theaters, just different plays. Um, I was cast in a play that had an off-Broadway run, so I got my equity card from that. Oh, great. Um, yeah. And, yeah, I've been in New York, sort of living my life. And so, as someone who, you know, you didn't study theater as a major in college, but you did, uh, take outside classes, and then you, as you Mm -hmm. said, you had more acting training later on, um, Mm -hmm. how did you find yourself in terms of or how did you find, rather, the, the training? Um, you know, were were there certain acting classes you took or styles of training that you really took to? Do you do you use? You know, did did you did you find that the training was was very useful, or was were you kind of just you know did you kind of just let your your acting uh, skill come out kind of organically? Uh, there's a certain amount of that you can do, but you really, I think, really do just try and have yeah. any sort of. Yeah. Uh, this one, or be able, or a method of, of working. Yeah. Once you get a job. Yeah. Um. But yeah. So I mean, I I went through different classes. So with various teachers. I mean, like I went. I think I first found HB Studios, which I think a lot of young actors yeah. find first. Yeah. Um. Studied with different teachers there. Uh. And Carl Rosenfeld and, and Michael Beckett and um. Uh. Those teachers. I think we got Hogan had already passed. By then, so I, I kind of missed being able to study with her. Yeah. Um, then I studied with like uh, different teachers, like um, Roger Simon had his own studio. Sam Shack, who was um, uh, the I think the the head of the uh, after studio training school graduate school at the time, and with him, he really taught me a lot. Um, I started really solidifying. Um, a way of working with him, but I think the the teacher that really did the most for me, or really solidified some sort of method of working, and was the most interesting to me, was Terry Schreiber, um, who has uh, his own studio, Terry Schreiber Studio. Yes, pretty pretty um, well known, and I've I've heard you're not the first person to tell me this. I've I've heard he's very good. 
Yeah, I, I absolutely loved setting a turn Shriver. I thought that he was incredibly inspiring, um, made acting really fascinating, as well as kind of breaking down um, being able to work. Like, how do you approach a role? How do you go about working on something? <laughs> I think he, like, he, he really taught me the most. That's um, great. And, and yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, and again, this is what I'm fascinated by. It's another big topic of this podcast is the training component, because I'll admit to you that I never had much formal training. And, and when I did, I was always very resistant to it. And now looking back, I, I very much regret that. Um, but so I'm very curious, you know, about, about how actors, you know, have about the training. So, so what, um, what about his style made it so, so intriguing for you? And also what are some of the elements of the actual technique? You said he really helped you solidify a, a method of working. What are some of the elements of that? Oh boy. <laughs> the whole thing. I could pull out his book. Um, <laughs> you could study with him for, for three years and find out. Um, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's scene study, it's script analysis. It's um, he he does a, he works with a lot of like um, working with private moments. It's a lot of stuff that's very method, but has his own his own take on it. Um, a lot of it is just it's not just intuitive. It's just sort of really kind of analyzing text and also character and background and also mining a play for the information about the character and the world they live in and doing the research, Um, which actually I found very helpful um, for improv. I use it to approach a lot of improvised characters. Um, I mean, (laughs) improvised, I mean the characters that we bring into improvisational situations where we're already coming in with a character. I use a lot of Mm. what he taught me to try and flesh out um, somebody before I start improvising with them. Right. Um, uh, I, I find that, again, there's a lot that can be taken from really traditional um, actor training study that should be brought also to improvisational actor training. Mm-hmm. Um, and he also talks about, like, uh, it was also good, like, you really get space to, um, you know, work with, like, relaxation, physicality, how to be like that he was very much a proponent of not was he was he's still alive <laughs> he's very much a proponent of just being completely physically relaxed yeah uh, and all the different ways that you get there and connected to yourself how do you connect to yourself how do you connect to your own past your own emotions your own like uh, memory sense memories without going without navel without like getting kind of lost in yourself but still being open <laughs> to your to the other after um to the the circumstances of the play so yeah so i thought that he was really inspiring fantastic love it and he, and he also just he also just made acting very exciting excellent excellent yeah well that's you know that's and how it, you know, also, it, it should be <laughs> hopefully yeah yeah and also, what I also liked about um, his particular, um, his classes that I took with him is that he'd also concentrate 
on specific playwrights for a period. So you're not just, you're not just focused on your actor training, but you are focused on um, the works of a particular playwright and really getting, learning about them after just, you are seeing work that other people, um, right. and just really exploring that. That appealed to the English major in me as well. <laughs> yeah. No, excellent. Yeah, that's, that's of course very helpful. <sighs> All right, very cool. Well, uh, Nanette, this has been uh, really fun and really interesting. Um, so, again, we will post the various links to the things we talked about and to IRTE and your improv duo and that film and everything else uh, on the show notes. And do you have any other um, social media you want to share, your own website or Twitter or anything like that? Oh, yeah. Well, if you want to see my really completely unupdated <laughs> website, which I should probably run on to update now. <laughs> really, I've been doing a lot of stuff with Ernie, so like my yeah. other uh, personal administrative stuff is, is falling back for But my website is Um Very easy. Ernie is I-R-T-E info. Um, Ernie, we're on, all the, we're on Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram. I feel very old fashioned and I'm still very Facebook for <laughs> very Facebook focused. Everybody's like, Facebook's dead. Oh eh. nah. Instagram. <laughs> um but we're there. We're all over. Alright, perfect. Well like I said, we'll we'll post all of this in the episode notes. And uh if anybody has any questions for me about the podcast, you can email uh Craft Business Life Podcast. That's all one word, Craft Business Life Podcast at gmail.com and uh, I don't know Nanette did we miss anything you wanted to talk about I'll talk for another few hours now <laughs> 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 talk about what I'm going to make for dinner tonight make there a you go. that sounds good yeah I'm, I'm wandering around my apartment eyeing the ingredients um, yeah that's it that's I'm sure there's a lot more, but I think that's all that's great. Absolutely. Well, we're, we're happy to have you back another time for some updates, and uh, maybe we can get more of the early people on. Maybe we'll have uh, an episode where you guys talk more about that group or whatever. Uh, but yeah, for now, yeah, I'd love to. Uh, for now, thank you again so much for doing this, and um, and that's about it. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Until next time. Bye.